Hello, and welcome to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at the usual place. I am Earl Fontenelle, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Claire Hall, a fellow at All Souls College in Oxford, and a woman who knows a thing or two about Firmicus Maternus, a curious astrologer of the Roman Empire. Claire, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. So, Firmicus Maternus is an interesting character, and I wonder if we could start, if you could just fill me in on the basics of his life. What do we know about the guy? When did he live? Where did he live? All that stuff. Sure. Okay. So, he's um, Firmicus Maternus is a, is a sort of fairly niche, niche fourth century astrologer, um, but also a Christian polemicist. And those are two job titles that I guess have caused quite a lot of problems in the scholarship on him. He was also at one point uh, a lawyer, um, and sometimes in texts he makes references to being a lawyer. So quite a diverse life. He lived in uh, the start of the fourth century. We think he was born around the year 300 in Sicily, probably in Syracuse. Um, And we know that he was from quite an upper class family. Some of our manuscripts with his works in uh, mention that he was he was a senator or from a senatorial family. And we've got two pieces of work that he wrote. One of them is a kind of astrological handbook for beginners. And one of them is this piece of really fervent Christian polemic about how he thinks the emperors should shut down all the all the pagan temples and burn them all to the ground. So two quite different pieces of work. And we know that the astrological handbook was written probably sometime between 334 and 337 AD. He makes reference to it to, to events in around that time period. And we know that the Christian polemic was written about 10 years later. And so we don't know very much else about the rest of his life. And so one of the things that scholars tend to focus on when they're talking about Firmicus is what happened in between 337 and 346 that caused him to change direction so much. Do you see a change in direction? I mean, we can come back to this later in more detail, but do you think there necessarily was a change of direction or was he just writing about two different things at different times? So I'm I'm one of the people who thinks that he didn't have much of a change in direction, although most people who have written on Firmicus, which to be honest is not a lot of people, think that he underwent some kind of conversion so that he'd, he'd had a traditionally pagan education and his astrological work. I mean, one of the reasons people think he was a pagan when he wrote the astrological work is that it's addressed to a patron um, who has one of his names is Mavortius, the, the word for Mars, and it seems fairly weird in that period that somebody called Mavortius wouldn't be a pagan. So the, the assumption is if his patron was a pagan and he's writing this big astrological text, you know, there's no there's no mention of Christianity in that text, he's probably also a pagan. I don't really think that logic necessarily follows. People have argued some different ways on this. I mean, so there's nothing explicitly Christian in the astrological text. Then again, he does make a few, uh, there's a few kind of, philosophical bits, including um, a prayer, and there's a a, a bit which people tend to call the astrologer's creed. And both of them follow quite closely Christian liturgical forms. And the astrologer's creed has some weird resonances with uh, the Nicene creed. So it's not not, uh, unthinkable that he actually might have been a Christian at the time that he wrote the astrological text, but he was either kind of not openly declaring that because it wasn't relevant or because he thought his patron wouldn't approve or or whatever. It's very hard to know from the kind of context of Syracuse in, in that period. You know, by the three, 330s, 340s, 
sure, a lot a lot of upper class Roman families would have converted to Christianity, but we also know um, from uh, evidence uh, elsewhere in more kind of peripheral parts of the empire, like in in Britain, at Lullingston Roman Villa in Kent, there's evidence of a senatorial family living in about the same period where we know that some of the family were Christians and some of them were pagans. So it's quite possible he lived in one of those kind of mixed families or, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to say one way or the other. So we shouldn't assume in retrospect that despite despite the kind of rhetoric that was undoubtedly around among Christians of total truth, absolute truth, the complete purification of society along Christian lines, all this kind of stuff, that that actually reflected reality on the ground. Right. Like um, except, um, of course, the problem for Firmicus is that that's exactly the kind of thing he says in this later right. work. And so one of the other questions is, is it possible that maybe he didn't have a conversion from paganism to Christianity, but he just had some kind of intensification of his religious feelings I, you know, he maybe he was a, a a kind of had Christian leanings or was a more kind of mild Christian at the start, but he became much more fervent. In yeah. which case, you know, there are question marks over why why that might have happened or what factors could influence that. Well, he's this is being written before the reign of Julian, right? Right, quite a while before. So he's so not his yeah. His first text is right at the end of the reign of Constantine, but by the time he writes the. The Christian polemic that's in the reign of Constantine's sons, Constance, Constantius and Constans. Um, and in fact, he dedicates that text to them. So mm. it could be a possible, you know, a feeling that, that after the reign of Constantine, Christianity is becoming a bit more cemented. But as you say, it's before Julian. So it's, the, it's not completely set in stone right. by that period. So he writes our earliest Latin language astrological handbook. Certainly our most complete, yeah. I mean, we have we have other astrological texts in Latin, like Manilius's um, astronomical poem, which has some astrological stuff. But Firmicus is the, really the first person to do a kind of, you know, here's the basics, astrology for dummies in so Latin. Is it safe to say that in the Latin West, in going into the first millennium, late antiquity in the first millennium, that he, along with Macrobius, are the two main sources for astrology? Yes, I think he's Firmicus is being read quite widely. Yeah, right. Um, so this is this just on its own is important, right? For the for the history of ideas, in the sense that you have a technical manual of astrology that you can do astrology with, and it's available in Latin way before any of the kind of Greek stuff gets translated into Arabic and brought back around back into Latin. Could you put the handbook into the context of what you might call the larger astrological tradition? So. Hellenistic astrology as we know it in the Greco-Roman sure. period. Does it have any anything unusual about it or is it just the standard sort of thing? It, in terms of its astrological doctrine, it's pretty similar to what we already know. He's quite in line with lots of stuff from Ptolemy. So the first the first book of, of his work, The Mathesis, is the astrological handbook, is a kind of defense of astrology. And it, it, it reiterates a lot of... Um, anti-astrological arguments and then sort of tries to rebut them. And all, all of those really are quite kind of stand, in standard circulation. Um, and then the next book sets up some sort of basic astrological concepts. And most of those are exactly as you would find in Ptolemy. So nothing too weird. And throughout the rest of the book, most of the astrological doctrine is, is very 
very kind of well known. It's similar to, to, to what you'd find in, say, Dorotheus of Sidon or, or anyone like that. So in that sense, he's not doing anything hugely innovative with the actual astrological doctrine. But what I think is is a bit more innovative in what he's doing is that um, in translating it into Latin, he's also bringing it very much into a kind of Roman imperial context. And so he has this whole thing about how he's kind of bringing the 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 ancient wisdom of Babylon and Egypt, and he's bringing it to Rome. And in fact, he's got this this kind of direct kind of metaphor about it. And he says his purpose is to convey to the temples of the Tarpeian rock, so to Rome, whatever the divine ancients of Egypt brought forth from their shrines, which I think is a really kind of interesting, if you read it as a, like an imperialist statement, I think it's a very interesting thing that's going on. Mm. Um, and he's also the first Latin language astrologer to say that what he's doing is is for beginners so he he cites a couple of a couple of latin writers who've written on astrology in fact both of the ones he cites uh, he says he mentions someone called navigius who we think is probably nigidius figulus interested listeners will want to check out episode 60 and 61 of the podcast where we get into that whole late republican astrological scene and, right uh, so he's somebody Firmicus mentions. And then the other person he mentions is somebody who he calls Fronto, but we don't know who that's referring to. Um, we think it might have been a contemporary of Nigidius Figulus called Fonteus. But it's, again, he's so the, the texts he mentions as being the kind of his predecessors aren't actually texts we have. Do we think this is because of textual corruption in his manuscripts? Uh, hard, to, he... hard to know. Right, okay. Could be either way. Um, yeah. It seems a, it seems a little odd if he if he gets it that wrong. It could well be textual corruption in in his manuscripts, but but he does say that what he's doing is is different from what they're doing because he's trying to to do this handbook for beginners. He's trying to bring all the Egyptian and Babylonian and Greek astrological law and make it available to Roman readers. And in that sense, what he's doing is is a bit um, different from someone like Manilius or even Ptolemy, who assumes some level of knowledge. Can you say anything more about the political ramifications of this? Because as we've already seen in the podcast in those aforementioned episodes in the 60s, so divination in general has a lot of political significance. It's like the closest thing the ancient world had to uh, all-powerful intelligence agencies, right? Like If you believe that people can really tell the future, that's politically hugely significant, you know? Like what general doesn't want to know how the battle's going to go? What exactly. emperor doesn't want to know how long they're going to live and whether there's going to be an assassination attempt, etc., etc., etc. But it sounds like there's more. There's there's some more nuanced political ramifications for what he's doing here. I don't know. Yeah. If you can so say I, something more about that. I think it's interesting thinking about Firmicus's work in the tradition of Roman encyclopedists. So there's a lot of Roman writers, um, Pliny, Cicero, Varro, people like that, who who wrote one way or another, quite encyclopedic works. Um, And so Pliny's Natural History, for example, aims to be a kind of a big encyclopedia of all the educated Roman man might need to know about about science and natural history. And lots of scholars have argued that it has quite specific kind of political overtones in arguing that this knowledge, this is knowledge that the empire brought together by being an empire – this demarcates the boundary of what an educated person knows. And an educated person is, of course, in, in, in Pliny's world, a Roman senatorial man. And I think 
Firmicus is doing something similar. He's saying, uh, if you're an educated Roman man, astrological knowledge is, is it's not some weird mystic thing from Egypt that oh you don't you don't really know about. It's it's part of the kind of you know philosophy. It's part of what you should know as an educated man, and that. I think is interesting given the context of when he's writing, which is at the end of Constantine's reign. And Constantine has kind of reunited the Roman Empire after a a long period of division and strife. And I think a lot of Roman um, elite families were beginning to feel like, oh, okay, we've got the old empire back in some way. Sure, it's a Christian empire. Sure, a lot of things have changed. But there's a kind of ah, the Roman Empire business as usual sense in some of the texts of the period. So I, I think there's something going on there. Another text that I think is, interest, is makes a kind of interesting point of comparison is um, Petronius's text, the Satyricon, which is a, from an earlier period, but in one point in that, there's a discussion of a dinner party held by a freedman, so an ex-slave in Rome. He he's this this he's portrayed as this kind of incredibly vulgar man, Trimalchio, and he holds this huge dinner party, um, and he sits there and he holds forth on all sorts of topics. And one of the topics that he holds forth on a lot is astrology, and I it's I think quite interesting to compare that with Firmicus. And to think about, well, what was the kind of cultural capital of this knowledge in Firmicus's circles? Was this the sort of thing where, you know, if you were an educated man, you needed to be able to hold forth on this at a, at a dinner party? Did you need to be, you know, in the same way that you get, you know, Plutarch's table talk, or you, you get um, people talking about philosophical issues and, and often religious issues? And I think Firmicus is trying to say astrology belongs in this milieu and I'm, I'm bringing it to Rome for, for kind of educated men to know about. That's really interesting. Um, when you take Petronius as an example, like, so this is, this is a satire and, and the nouveau riche Trimalchio is, uh, is portrayed by Petronius as, as you say, just, just a horrible f- flashy, I mean, the, the modern equivalent would be some like rich uh, spiv with a massive gold chain and he's got like a huge mansion up in Essex and he's like trying to impress his... his and got uh, loads of really fancy cutlery and like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, but he hasn't got an, an inch of uh, breeding, of real breeding. So if he's... If he, in the, in the first century, in the in Neronian period, which is when um, Petronius is writing, yeah. if, he's, if he's spouting astrology, presumably in that time, it was seen, at least by Petronius, as something that that sort of person would start spouting at a dinner party to show that they were a la mode, that they yeah, were hip. Yeah, absolutely. But now this is and 300 I, years later, right? So yeah, I wonder if it's but, it's like an established part of science at this stage. Yes, perhaps. But um, I mean, it's hard to know without knowing more about the specific kind of social context of Syracuse, right? Remember, this isn't Rome. We're not kind of, we're not kind of a la mode. We're, we're in Southern Italy. Right. And I, and I think... Again, within this time period, the people who are, who are there at the dinner party are going to be a slightly different set of people, right? In that there's now going to be there's now going to be Christians. So whereas before you might have wanted, if you were you know a swish senatorial dude and you were trying to host a fancy dinner dinner party, you might have invited you know priests from the local cult, or you might have tried to get some kind of important people from the from the area in. Now you might have. Um, you know, your pres- your local presbyter or, or I mean, maybe, maybe even your local bishop or, you know, so there's, so there's been a shift of power over to kind of Christian authority as well. 
in, in looking at astrology through this podcast, one of the things I struggle with is that if we look at the history of Western esotericism from a modern standpoint and look back, one of the key esoteric sciences, let's say, will be astrology, without any doubt. Astrology and alchemy, these are both very, very central to Western esotericism. It's really questionable how esoteric we can say astrology is at yeah. certain times in history, right? So at certain yeah. times, I mean, first of all, if you have court astrologers advising the emperor, it's mainstream. Whatever yeah. else it is, it's central, it's, it's imperial, in fact, right? Sure. And you see this again in the Islamicate world later on, imperial astrology, especially in the early modern Islamicate empires. So there's that. But then, is it esoteric in the sense that it's presenting itself as a revelation of hidden knowledge? So, in other words, the, the gods or fate or whoever communicates to, to humans through the signs that are in the sky, and we sort mm -hmm. of unveil them through our scientific art of astrology. So does Firmicus present himself in this way? So, for example, Vettius Valens has um, what they call a um, secrecy colophon, I think they call it, secrecy... Um, like in his book, he actually says, this is secret wisdom and you should be careful who you give this book to and this sort of thing. So it's it's framed as an esoteric work, right? Yeah. Do we have any of those kind of rhetorics in Firmicus or is it more like, here it is, astrology for dummies in Latin? No, it does have that. And it do, it certainly has, while it's doing this whole thing of of saying, you know, here's the the divine exotic mysteries from Egypt and Babylon, it's certainly playing on the secrecy element. Absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't in, in this period or indeed in an earlier period really think of astrology as esoteric in the same way that I wouldn't think of divination as, as esoteric. To me, that's quite a difficult category to apply to this period. I mean, I guess magic always has been esoteric, right? Even, in, even, even while divination was, was kind of mainstream in the Greek and Roman worlds, magic always always was this more kind of, oh, you don't, you, you know, it's a bit more hidden, it's a bit more clandestine, you don't really talk about it, it's a bit more marginal, it's so on. But not astrology? Not, not so much. I, I mean, I see, I see astrology within the, I don't really see it as, as linked with magic, I see it very much as a scientific tradition. And so, yeah, I see it very much as in line with ast astronomical doctrine yeah. and as developing in a parallel way. That being said, does Firmicus get into what we would call astronomy at all? Does he give a kind of cosmology no. with spheres and all that kind of stuff? No, no I so don't think he has much. I don't think he's got much understanding of astronomy, actually. Really? So it's much more a practical approach? To it's it. much more practical. You can cast from it. I mean, it's you get quite weird things, um, but you can use it. Uh, as a, you can actually cast horoscopes from using Firmicus's handbook because he's got most of the kind of tail end of the handbook is you know lists of things. If you've, you know you've got Mars in this house and so on, whatever this, these are the results and they're written out. Okay, right. Um, so he actually gives. Does he does he give example horoscopes? No, not sort of step by step, but he has you know he's got outcomes. Um, right, and so. actually, there's a very interesting article by Lynn Thorndike looking at the kind of outcomes that Firmicus predicts and using them as a sort of source for social history, which is quite an eccentric article. It's, it's really good. And it, it talks in part about how when Firmicus talks about different ways in which people die in these predictions, drowning is disproportionately represented. And that's a kind of like 
why is that you know and so so Lynn Thorndike looks at some of these some of these things and I think it's I think it's fascinating I actually think you can do a huge amount with those I mean it's you know it's a text that otherwise you're looking through and you're thinking great okay someone else has got you know some horrible disease and oh they're going to marry an ugly person and oh they're going to die unfortunately young and you're reading through it and it's all a bit doom and gloom but when you start sort of combing it the wrong way and you think, why is there so much in there about drowning? Does that sort of speak to an anxiety in particular about drowning? Or you know, I think texts like that could be picked in yeah. unexpected ways. So let's expand on that. Drowning, okay, the, the first thing I think of is back in the day in the Roman world, well, especially someone living on Sicily, if he wants to go anywhere, he has to go by ship. So right. ships were pretty rubbish and drowning was a regular occurrence, right? And Sicily, it was the site... Of, in, in both Punic Wars, Sicily was a hugely important kind of strategical naval area and probably local local memories of, of lots of sea battles. Mm. Um, Maybe even the, the, the original siege Sicily with Archimedes. The, as the, you know, as the site of, yeah. So that's one illumination we can get on the, about the kind of preoccupations that people would have had back then that are maybe different from ours. But... Um, can you expand on what Thorndike does in this article for those who, who don't read it? I'll, of course, have it in the bibliography to this episode. But is he looking at these prophetic results as a kind of ex eventu commentary on actual historical events? Or is that not what he's doing? I don't think so. So I think he's saying, are the predictions kind of categories that are fixed by astrology as an art? Is it one of those things where like you kind of go with the conventions of the genre regardless of the the kind of historical reality of how likely those predictions are. Not not even how likely, I'm not talking about kind of working out probabilities, but just like, you know, if the Babylonians made loads of predictions about drowning, but you're in, you know, 300 AD in Syracuse, and it would be really inappropriate to, to make loads of predictions about drowning, would you make a change there? Or, or would it be the kind of thing where you're like, hey, this is all kind of inscribed in the law and the conventions of, of the genre, and, and therefore you keep the kind of balance of outcomes. And I mean, that's that's always a really difficult thing to know when working with astrological texts that make specific predictions, because sometimes they make th- make predictions that, you know, logically seem a bit a bit weird, and you think, is that a reflection of understandings of how these things work? So an example I'm thinking of is a very short text I worked on, which probably probably was Hellenistic, although it was in, really hard to date. It. it could have been medieval, but it was a it was a set of predictions about marriage and what sign the moon was in when you when you get married and what that might mean about your future wife. And so it was written very much from the point of view of the husband. And some of the predictions were things like your wife will have a really round face if you get married when the moon's in Taurus, and it's like. What's the logic going on here? Is this somebody consulting an astrologer about to get married and they're finding out like when is a good time to do it, depending on where the moon is? Is this a very hypothetical thing where the person has not, you know, decided who they're going to marry and therefore like, sure, you might end up marrying someone with a really round face? You see what I mean? It's it's the, the logic of it is not immediately clear. And I think it can be a bit easy to get kind of sucked into thinking like, yeah, but does this specifically reflect the situation, you know, the context around, or is this a kind of, are there sort of conventional things that you know everyone knows it's a bit of a weird prediction, but it's but it's fine within within the context. So there will have been 
there will on the one hand have been, a, there is a literature, we already know there are other writers before him in Latin, and presumably he can read stuff in Greek as well, with the, the vast yeah. majority of a astrological yeah. texts are in Greek. And there will be among many things, like example horoscopes, also these lists of outcomes, which which really reminds me of the, the dream manual of Artemidorus, which is also right. a, a little tip of an iceberg of a much larger literature, where you have these this dream means this, this dream means this. If a woman dreams of this, it means this, but if a man dreams of it, it means this. So you, the huge lists basically make up his most of the work. And it's clear that they're traditional, but yeah. it's also clear that Artemidorus, for example, as a dream diviner, will have been taking notes as well. And yes. someone dreamt of giving birth to an eagle, and then their son became a high-ranking official and went, aha, you know, so yeah. you, on the one hand, you have inherited tradition. On the other hand, you have individual practitioners adding to it, building on it, changing stuff, saying, "Ooh, that didn't come true. That can't be right." Yeah, is that sort of the process you see at work here? Yeah, I think there's an agglomeration over a long period of time of different different outcomes, and I, I think so. One of the interpretations historically of Firmicus has been that he's kind of doesn't really get what he's talking about, and he's just a, a kind of slavish copier of. Of, of other texts and like he has no real kind of control over what he's doing and i i think that is an underestimation of him i think he he isn't just doing that because i think he is aware of his roman context so yes i do think there are cases where he's where he probably is yeah taking notes and, and seeing how things go but again how, how would you know either you know yeah how could you find that out from the text either either way yeah you can from a text like valens where you have all these horoscopes of sure. given people, given cities, right? Et absolutely, yeah, it's yeah. It's very clear that the dude was casting horoscopes like crazy, and, and right. Saying, there's, I, there's not that level of specificity in Firmicus. So it really is a, a kind of intro to astrology. Yeah, uh, fascinating. There's a couple of technical questions I'd love to ask you. You were talking about it, it being roughly the same sort of thing that we find in Ptolemy, but one of the things about Ptolemy that's really interesting in is that he's very clear that that astrology works, but in terms of why it works, like the yeah. philosophical or scientific underpinnings of the way it functions, he's open-ended. So how does Firmicus, does Firmicus address this? Does he talk about fate, for example? Yes. Uh, and he's just a straight up fatalist. So he, um, he does talk a little, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of have an extensive discussion of whether the stars are signs or whether they're causes, but if he did, he would very much come down on the side of causes. He he he's he has an explicit declaration that fate controls everything. So he doesn't have that that I mean that bit in Ptolemy I absolutely love where he compares astrology to um, medicine and and says, well, you know, if the doctor makes a a prog makes a prediction about what's going to happen, but then something else intervenes, like the patient takes some course of action, then sure the prediction doesn't have to come true because it's it's a prediction based on the available information. Obviously, for Ptolemy, stuff in the sublunary world, stuff that's not made of pneuma or ether or whatever it is, stuff that's made out of the regular elements, you know, stuff goes wrong all the time. Sure, ast astrology is, is not as perfect as astronomy. And Firmicus doesn't have scruples like that. He, he, he thinks absolutely f fate is absolute. Now, how do you square that, if you've given this any thought, with the idea that he is a raging Christian? 
Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously almost all of our early Christian texts on, on fate absolutely reject fate. I don't know. I mean, it's not clear how you how you would square it. It's certainly not not clear how you would square it with with Firmicus's later views. It's possible that he changes his views. Fair enough. Honest answer. You just don't know. Does it, no. I mean, you could speculate that this guy about whom we know very little it just isn't even privy to these these high-level philosophical debates going on within Christianity about free will and foreknowledge and fate and all this kind of stuff. And it's just not even crossed his radar. You know? Right. And, and I suppose in his texts, you know, in his Christian work, he's writing very, he's very much focused around sort of denigrating forms of pagan religiosity, like mystery cults and so on. He's, he's not theological in the sense that he doesn't kind of go into the sort of theological philosophy of things. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's not something he thought through. Um, Or the other, the other answer is to say that in the astrological work, He's not really interested in going into that because his interest is really in, in presenting a practical handbook and not not getting embroiled in the kind of signs versus causes debate. Mm. Hard to know. Hard to know. Have you looked at the early Christian polemics against astrology at all? Yes. And that is very robust stream of criticism by the fourth century, right? Uh, yes. And the anti-fatalist argument is is pretty robust by the fourth century. They fall into a few different categories, the the kind of early Christian responses to astrology. And a surprising number of them are just like, no, it's it's evil and immoral. I mean, they accept that it's some of them accept that it's efficacious, but they just say it's wrong and immoral, which I've always found a kind of interesting and and surprisingly common stance in antiquity about all sorts of things where people say people are perfectly happy to accept that something works. They just don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's lots of people's stance on magic, magic for example. Yeah. Um, but other, others of them take up kind of fairly standard academic or whatever arguments about um, astrology saying, you know, how could you possibly know the moment of birth? What about the case, cases of twins? Cicero has a whole long thing about the difficulties of twins for, ast- yeah. for astrology. So if two people are born at the same time, how come they don't have exactly the same fate? And people go into all these ridiculous hair-splitting arguments about, well, they're not actually born at the same time. One's born slightly before, you know, so on. And so Christians kind of tap into that literature. So they make these surprisingly practical arguments. But yes, of course, one of the things that they do argue against is, is the aspect of fate, particularly the problems it causes for salvation and for, you know, conversion, choice to follow Christ, for them is is often a um, a very important part of of salvation theology, but also of eschatology. How can you be judged if you were just fated to do something? They're not all completely libertarian. So there are some of them who have a kind of view that things can be obviously because they have to they have to allow room for prophecy, you know, and they have to allow room for God's foreknowledge. So so some of them have this. I'm thinking of Origen in particular. Have this kind of middle way where. Sure, the future is theoretically foreknowable, and in fact, Origen um, is surprisingly open to the idea of astrology, in theory, not really in practice. But the idea that the stars theoretically could be a, a system of signs, that it is possible for angels, but, but actually also, in extraordinary cases, human beings, to read those signs and know the content of the future. And that 
you know, that's quite hard to square with fate. And the more somebody like Origen has the kind of philosophical chops to really go into the discussion of what's going on there. And Augustine later will do very similar things. He's treading that funny line where if you say, does Augustine believe in free will or fate or what? And you can't give a straightforward answer. You can't say either way. Yeah. And I actually, you know, Ptolemy is kind of the same, right? And, And I think... I don't think it excludes you. That this is why I'm. I, I don't believe in the kind of the idea that if someone's an astrologer, they can't be a Christian. You are right that in the case of Firmicus, he is so uncritical about fate, yet he's so fervent in his Christianity. And is it just falling into the trap of oh, Firmicus was a bit of an idiot to kind of say, well, he didn't didn't know, he can square those things, or do you want to posit a development in his thought? You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't yeah, know. I, I think hard, of. I once got a lift hitchhiking with a guy who was a fundamentalist Christian in America and a car mechanic. And we got in this whole discussion. He was like, I believe that, you know, no, everything in the Bible is literally true. And I was like, really? That the ark, Noah's ark, all the animals in this ark? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happened. And I was like, I was trying to get get him to reflect on his own understanding of like mechanical engineering as an auto mechanic. Yeah. And he kind of knows how materials work and how much you can put into a given space and i was like and think about just as a rough measurement think of how many kinds of animals there are in the world and how big this boat is supposed to be and it's made of wood is it at all possible that such a boat could and it was like he had two completely watertight compartments in his mind like the, you know he's not going to pray to fix your car he's going to fix your car yeah. using the right tools and spanners and everything and then on the other hand he, he totally believes in the literal truth of the bible and the two to him are not a contradiction so maybe right. Firmicus just be- totally believes in this science of astrology. It functions on the one hand. On the other hand, he's a fervent believing Christian and yep. is willing to accept whatever the church is laying down as the new credo of the decade or whatever. And that's what we believe. And we hate all these pagan practices. Um, and the two just coexist. Just don't need to meet. And I think it's a, I mean, it's an alarming prospect, but I think that's the case way more often in thinkers of the past than many of us want to recognize because obviously it's nice to be able to you know dating the works of plato on on the progression of the thought and you think hang on we this all totally relies on an assumption that that somebody's thought develops in such a way that you know it's clearly and linearly expressed as getting you know more and more into a certain doctrine or more whatever whereas you know it could just be on wednesday on Wednesdays he's you know more into this, and on Fridays he's more into this, and that's just that's just what it's like to be a person. And I think sometimes we demand a level of coherence from ancient authors that we don't demand, even from ourselves as scholars. Right? People write books where they disagree with themselves of ten years earlier, and it's it's fine. And no one no one says, oh, this person must have had a radical conversion. You just say, okay, well, the person either thinks two different things at once or you know they slightly changed their mind or yeah, they moved on. whatever it is yeah you know and also that it's hard when you only have two two pieces of writing from somebody and they're so different because you don't know whether there's loads of other stuff in the middle that you missed or you know when you have pieces of writing in different genres and you tend to take the kind of philosophical seriousness of of, of different genres so a person i'm thinking about in in this context is philo Philo says different things about prophecy in different texts, and those things seem at first to be a little contradictory. So sometimes he says prophecy is where 
you're totally taken over by the spirit and you don't you're not perceiving it and you know you're just a complete vehicle and then sometimes he talks about prophecy as a kind of intellectual engagement and you're really there and you're you're on it and and you think oh hang on is there is there some clever theory for for why he can say these two different things and sometimes i think it's just the case that you know in one work he's rhetorically emphasizing something else so it can it can totally depend on the genre and the context of what he's trying to argue and how philosophically heavy he thinks the work is or you know what he who he's talking about so the work where he's talking about intellectual engagement he's talking specifically about Moses maybe he thinks it works a bit differently for Moses than it does for you know whoever else and so I think often those contextual features can be overlooked in a desire to square texts that don't quite fit together and create a discipline called classics in the process yeah yeah (laughs) Um, Claire Hall, I think we've reached the uh, the end of our allotted span of time. The Kairos has come and fate decrees that we must finish. But okay. uh, thank you so much for talking to us about Firmicus. Thank and, you. And uh, stay esoteric. Thank you. <laughs>